Welcome to the Kohani podcast from me, Isaac Mwema. This is where we build each other up in the faith so that we can be a holy and priestly people. This means that we strive for and are changed by God's presence while also influencing others to be changed by that same presence. Praise God, everyone. Um, it's been a while that I have been here. And I wanted to address the scheduling for the podcast because it has to change. Um, there's a lot that has changed in my life um, due to the transitions into marriage and everything that involves that. And therefore, I may not be able to consistently deliver on midweek podcasts. And therefore, I'd ask that you bear with me uh, that I see that Saturday mornings are way better and effective for me. And therefore, we will work with that for now until uh, there are some other adjustments that may assist in the way uh, to make room for uh, probably uh, other times. We're going to discuss on the letter the royal edict from Christ to the church in Pergamon. I don't want us to lose the momentum of the text. This is Christ that appeared to John, the revelator, John, the disciple. And therefore, he's having a second encounter of the resurrected Christ, a unique experience that he's having with him. Perhaps the disciple that saw Jesus the most, more than all the others, uh, before he was also persecuted and killed like the rest of them but that he got a sufficient uh, duration to see the resurrected Christ, not just once, but twice. And that he sees him through an angel that was sent to him. We remember chapter 1 that comes to reveal to him through signs the things that Christ wants to communicate unto his church. And therefore, this is the Christ that we were learning when we spoke about the vision of the Son of Man that as he came in his glory and in his character and to, to speak unto John, holding the seven stars in his hands and walking amongst the lampstands, that this is the Christ speaking unto him concerning his church. And therefore, this is a continuous conversation. I don't want us to lose the momentum of where this is coming from. Therefore, I want us to pray and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, bless the interpretations thereof, the reading, bless the minds and the hearts herein. The Lord caused this word to be translated, O oh God, very specifically to the situation and circumstance, the region where they are in, O oh God, the seasons which they are passing through. The Lord, it may be an effective word to change, heal, and transform. Your word from the beginning was effective. And it will be up to right now to cause a creative work in the hearts of men, O oh God, that they will never be the same. Therefore, we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pagamam, coming from the word gamos in Greek, meaning marriage, but that this is a church that is married to the world, sadly. Pagamam is a compromising church. It was considered 
a capital to the Roman province in this region of Western Turkey, then known as Asia Minor. It was a capital for almost 25 years, that's almost two decades and over, and that it was known to be a spiritual center for many other divine things that are otherworldly. It hosted temples that were dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma, and also to um, this is Asclepius, which is a god of healing, and he is symbolized by serpents. And therefore, we continue with this theme that Christ plants his church in hostility, right in the throne of Satan. That is where Christ will plant his church. And that was the whole conversation about with Peter, that on this rock I will build my church. That rock where they were talking about it was Mount Hermon that we know there was demonic worship right where they were talking uh, from in that region that Jesus was talking with Peter where the gates of hell were, were located. It was famously called the gates of hell. So I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And therefore Christ continues to plant his church right in the midst of hostility. And that our eyes should be wide awake in cities and in country alike. That God plants his churches in the midst of hostility. And that when we see other temples and religions, symbols of serpents and other goddesses, symbols of the moon and of Prince Diana and of Tammuz and all these other things, that God has planted his church there to dominate not by taking the economy, not by a kingdom uh, kingdom takeover mentality, as many would presume, no, but that we will take over through acts of humility and walking in righteousness and integrity, and that we will be able to win many over through an attractive lifestyle of Christ. In Pergamum was a large altar that was dedicated to Zeus, and that it was also known to be the origin of Caesar worship. That's right. The emperor started to demand worship unto himself, the Roman emperor, Caesar. Together with other governors also in the region, as we will see in the other letters, they started a cult-like uh, demand from the followers that they should worship them. And therefore, this was a place that was entangled with all manner and kinds of demonic and spiritualism uh, activities within the area that eventually we know affected this church. And we are going to see how. And so when Christ says that Satan's throne is located in the midst of them, that they are dwelling where Satan's throne is, now you understand the mixture of religions and cults and altars and goddesses and gods and cult-like leaders were in that region. Therefore, we read the text quickly and then we'll go to our interpretations. And to the angel in the church of Pergamum write the words of him who, was, who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
So right from there, we said when Jesus is giving a description of his characteristics from chapter 2, we know what he's going to talk about. It's a prophetic alignment to where he's going to call the church towards. That the right way to see ourselves is through Christ. That if we see ourselves by our own lens, that number one, we'll be biased, and number two, even if we see the truth of, our, of ourselves, we cannot be able to handle the truth without hurting ourselves. And therefore, the right way to see ourselves is through Christ. That when we see him, then we can be able to interpret ourselves correctly, just like it were with, uh, with Jesus and Peter, that he asked him, who do you say I am? And through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Peter said that Jesus was the Son of God, and that through that, Jesus revealed to Peter that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So there's first the revelation of who Jesus is. Then there is the revelation of who Peter is correctly. And therefore, that is what is happening here. When Jesus is saying the words of him who are the sharp two-edged sword, we know that there's going to be a discourse and a calling back towards the accuracy and the integrity of the word of God, the sharp two-edged sword. It's two-edged because neither is it leaning on one extreme or the other. It is just the word. It will not be banned on preaching about suffering and hellfire, but that it will also preach about the blessings of God. It will not be bent about preaching the blessings of God and prosperity, but that it will preach about suffering and hellfire. It is a sharp two-edged sword. It cuts here and it cuts there at the same time. Neither will it be bent on just telling people that they are okay and that God loves them and that everything is going to be all right. And neither is it just bent on telling people that they are sinners and they need to repent, that it will cut on both ends, that there will be need for a word of confronting sin and of suffering and of righteousness. And yet at the same time, there needs to come a word that God loves his people, a sharp two-edged sword. We continue verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We have already talked about so. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So there's an insistence about where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is, and we have seen why. And we have a declaration from Christ himself, a commendation to the church that Jesus did not just come to his churches to reveal to them their weaknesses or to reveal to them their problems. No, but he comes with a commendation before he gives a witness about their failings. And therefore, they have been a loyal church. In as much as they are a compromising church, they are a loyal church. And that speaks a lot that it's possible even to be uh, in a group that you would call conservative in your culture but that there are compromising things happening in your church. That yes, you can hold fast to his name, but is there a holding on to his word? Because we are going to encounter that word several in this scripture, a holding on, holding on to his name, but they are also holding on to the teachings that are false. Continue verse 14. 
But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, again, the holding on, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So right from the onset, we can see that this is a church that is suffering from serious compromise to the extent that now people are eating food that is sacrificed to idols. Of course, we know the argument of Paul in the letters to the Corinthians that uh, we cannot be able to scrutinize every food that we get from the food store. And we conclusively say that this comes from idols and therefore um, if we eat out of doubt, we are sinning. Uh, but that this, Paul himself say that if you know that that food is coming uh, from some sort of worship or sacrilege or that it was used for any other religious purposes apart from uh, that of the true God and you're eating it, then that mandates it as a sin. But that also there is uh, an environment of adverse sexual immorality in this church and that they are suffering it. So for one, they have reached a level where they have compromised to the world to this level, that they don't see any issue with eating foods that have been dedicated to Zeus and all these other temples that we have learned from the beginning. And now there is a, a spreading of sexual immorality in the church. And yet it is coming from teachings from a group of people. So we see that there are some who are holding on to the teachings of Balaam. So rightly so, these are churches that most likely were planted with the apostles and that the true gospel was preached for them to be able to be planted within a specific region. And we know that there was a structure in the church where the apostles would look after the church, even though they were pastored by different in individuals over a period of time, but that these did not, this did not guarantee that there won't be uh, an infestation of false teachers and false prophets severally even in the other epistles in in the gospels we are warned of an invasion of people who have come to pervert of the gospel and it is high time that we consider that now more than ever in a compromising church that we are today that there has been a spreading of false teachers, false doctrines, false prophets, which Jesus himself said would be a significant sign of the times of the end of the age. And therefore, this is a reference to Balaam and Balak, a story starting from Numbers chapter 22, ending in Numbers 25, but that we see... Um, God referring to the same uh, Balaam in Numbers chapter 31 because Balaam came at Numbers 22 to be called by this Balak who was a Moabite king and that this was a time during the uh, Israeli inquest into the promised land. They had just crossed the Dead Sea and therefore they were riding through the regions. And therefore, if you read the previous chapters before Numbers 22, 
they would ask a king that they walk through what was called a king's highway. It was a neutral ground provided by um, the, the royal words of the king that a certain kind of people can pass peacefully without any kind of quarrel. And that Moses, yes, Moses would send various people, servants, to go and speak to those kings that they may pass through the highway and that if they refused, then that was a declaration of war and they would attack and take over the land. So that's how they took over various kinds of kingdoms uh, before that, including Og that was uh, quite a non-king during that time and various others. And therefore, the Moabite king, uh, who was also a son of Chemosh, uh, a Canaanite god um, who was militaristic in his nature, that him as a Moabite could not stand the Israelites going with the momentum that they were going with. So he was terrified, he was scared, and he didn't want to negotiate with them. But he knew a secret, a spiritual secret, being that he's a frequent worshiper of that god Jemosh, and that he knew that he can weaken Israel spiritually. And therefore he sent for this Balaam. We don't know of the origins of his gifting, but that he was a Gentile, lifting, uh, living in a place that is near the river Euphrates, Euphrates, if you want to call it like that, but that he is called by Balak in a land that is a bit distant, which means that he is a, div a diviner kind of sorts of international repute. Therefore, he was known beyond the place where he was living in. And that the fact that Balak constantly tempted Bela with promises of money and property shows that there were such kind of people that would be consulted by kings before war that they would inflict some certain sort of uh, of spiritual wounds or, 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 or punctures in the enemy's camp so that by the time they attack them physically, they can be able to take over them because spiritually they have overcome them. So he understood the principle that the spiritual is even a much higher reality than the physical and that we know that he knows this from their God who is Chemosh, who is... A militaristic god and therefore this is a militaristic strategy right from the gates of hell and so Balaam hears of this and God warns him during the first inquiry not to go with those people and they go back to Balaam because uh, they go back to Balak because Balak had sent uh, some of his best uh, representative and diplomats, even some from Midian, because he had, teamed, he had teamed up with the king of Midian. But in the second inquiry, because Balak kept persisting, as we have said, promising more and more giftings, we get to know that Balaam was gradually getting um, tempted by the promises of material possession. We know this by the fact that God told him in the second time that when those people came, even uh, Balak sending a larger uh, troop of diplomats and royal men, that we know that Balaam was tempted because God told him that if, 
if those men come back to you, go with them because he had told them to lodge in a certain place that was far away. Those men did not come to Balak that morning, but that Balak, out of his own accord, rose up in the morning. Yet God told him, if they come to you, and therefore we see some sort of rush, some sort of uh, uh, earnestness from Balaam to go. Um, and therefore, we can see the temptation of money and of financial gain on him. And so he rose up with them. He went, but that on his journey with his donkey, we know this, uh, this story where the donkey speaks to Balaam. The angel of the Lord came to him and we know that he was about to kill him, not really because, number one, the donkey spoke to him. So that was God's mercy. Um, and number two, God opened his eyes to see the angel. So he didn't really mean to kill him, but that it was a warning of the danger of the path that he is going to walk in. And therefore, if he had heard God previously and he did what he said, then the angel could not have told him back that then God would be contradicting himself by bringing an angel to warn him. And therefore, the angel told him, even through uh, intervening with the donkey, that he should only speak to Balak what God tells him. And therefore, that's exactly what Balaam does. And therefore, we see some genuineness in his ministry, if we might say, that he speaks three oracles over Israel, that when Balak takes him, just like it was with the temptation of Jesus, he takes him to different positions to see the Israelites. And these positions were mountains where he would have a vintage view of the Israelites. And this, these mountains were in such a way that when they progressed from one place to another, he would see fewer and fewer and fewer Israelites. And therefore, Balak was trying to appeal to him about the numbers of the Israelites in that to, de to deceive him that if they would be few in number, then he would be able to cast them. But that in all the occasions, Balaam obeyed God and he spoke what God wanted him to speak, including the third oracle where he potentially prophesied of an Israelite king who is the Messiah. And that the story ends there in Numbers 24. But that in Numbers 25, we find out that the Israelites themselves who are camping enter into perverse covenants and abominations with the children of Moab. Where did that one come from? It's just out of nowhere. So for one, yes, the people who were prophesied to don't look like what the prophecy said. Because as we already say, that seasons of revelation are followed by seasons of exposure. That when God reveals great things that he wants to do in someone's life, they will not look like it immediately. But that the promise itself comes to say that there is going to be a journey of transformation that is going to start. But that also, secondly, the Israelites could not have just in their own accord decided that all of a sudden they are going to mingle with the children of Moab to the extent that people would have sexual intimacy in the tent of meeting. Like it was bad, it was that bad. It was just a rapid infestation of sexual immorality and idolatry that came on the camp of the Israelites. A compromise that it took someone other than Moses to bring the justice and the hand of the Lord on the issue. And that was Phinehas. 
we remember him stabbing one of the sons of the leaders of Moab who had slept in the temple with one of the elders, one of the daughters of the elders of Israel. It was later on when God was bringing judgment on the camp of Moab and Midian, Midian that we find out in Numbers 31 that Balaam fell to the temptation of money. He fell to the temptation of cash, the promise of materiality that Balaam was flashing in front of him and he advised Balak on how he can get to the Israelites, that you cannot be able to cast them, but I can show you how they can cast themselves. And that's the strategy of the devil himself to the church today and to the nations, that he may not be able to have some certain authority over the people to defeat them in this sort of war over the souls of men, but that he can get the people to cast themselves and pervert themselves to the extent that the judgment of God is upon them and they destroy themselves. That is the very heart of Satan. Why do you think there's a rapid rise in sodomy and homosexuality and pedophilia? Ask yourself. Because the devil knows that when we abort the children in our stomachs, when you do these abominations, when we sleep with the same gender, that we are raising a finger against God. And that through that, he's able to find a vulnerable people to infest and to do what he wants. Didn't you see the pride parades? Have you, have you not seen how they are going out of order? Is that human rights now? Ah, now we know the real reason. And now we know the real reason for those pride events. Didn't you see the Black Lives Matter riots? Did you see how chaotic and destructive and how they were filled with flags and even demonic worship and altars that were done on the streets? Now we know the reason as to why that that is the devil's strategy, that he can get us to curse ourselves through abominations that the devil does not like to see the image of God in us. It hurts him. He's jealous of it. And therefore, he wants us to pervert the image of God in us, that men look like women and women look like men. That is the devil's joy. He doesn't like the image of God. And therefore, by doing so, we end up cursing ourselves. Quickly, we look at some texts that speak about Balaam, the Bible interprets itself. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Therefore, second the right way, speaking of false teachers, and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So we saw, we see here rightly, the interpretation is that Balaam fell for the material temptation. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They ran greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. And therefore, the Bible itself lets us know the reason as to why Balaam ended up advising Balak about this. And so, it comes to us today to ask ourselves, 
what is the reason that can cause the church to enter into such kind of compromise? Scripture tells us severally, if I may answer that quickly, is that they will be and there will be a continual increase in a demand for a gospel that suits us. That we will have itchy ears for something other than the truth. That with time, people will want to hear from the pulpit what they want to hear. And that with that, they will gradually dilute the gospel, which is what God says. And they will continue to insist and to demand that whoever stands there tells them exactly what they want to hear. And that will lead to fantasies and heresies and a love for teachers and preachers that are false. Just like the region was filled with spiritualism and doctrines of demons, the same things were being taught to the church. Things that would bring a spiritual benefit even involving the twisting of scripture because these, came, these things came in the form of teaching. They are very subtle. Twisting of scriptures to look spiritual in a kind of way but that they introduced doctrines and teachings from the demonic world. This is what was happening to this church. And we see its fruits. A huge amount of compromise just like it was to the camp of Israel. And therefore, we know conclusively from this letter that these people are those Nicolaitans that we were talking about that attacked the church of Ephesus. And we know that they were rejected there, but that they got this church exactly where they wanted them to be. These were men that declared themselves to be apostles, as we see in the letter to Ephesus. They do not submit to the spiritual authority of the church, neither do we know the origins thereof, but that they come in an apostolic or in a pastoral or in a prophetic authority, pretending to be teachers of God and evangelists, whatever the title they'll put in front of them, and that the church will bite. There is a naivety in the face of the church. And therefore, it asks us today, what carries the credibility of a minister in the modern church? Why are we taking teachings that are outrightly blasphemous? The church is bought with skill. These are men of talent, eloquence, expertise, and charisma. They are bought with sage, men of scholarly repute. They are bought with status. These are men that are mingling with influential people. They have broad connections. They have religious titles. The church is bought with size. These are masses of congregants. They see an online audience, a TV audience that is big. The church is bought by simplistic teachings. These are teachings that don't demand anything of us. They are undemanding. They are unexacting. These are pain-free doctrines that have sparkles of truth and they are abstamped by using the name of Jesus and some scriptures to make them sound Christianese, but that in the process they will be mixed with other doctrines that have come straight from the pit of hell. 
But what do scriptures advocate for in First Timothy chapter 3? Is that do we know the story of that, of that minister and that ministry? What is the history? What is the testimony of salvation and service as told by the church and ordinance by other spiritual authorities? Is it that they have put themselves to be in a place that, are, that is above reproach? That even when they have spiritual fathers, even when they have people who overlook over them, they conveniently choose people that just agree with them so that they are not asked the question of who, who are you under? But that what is the story of some of these ministers really? I have come, sadly, and this is sadly, I have come to the conclusion that some ministers are not born again. That yes, there might have been a genuine calling. And including maybe to these same Nicolaitans, there might have been as a a genuine calling. We see even in Balaam that there was a genuine use of God, but that in the process and with time, with influence and with greed and with the, with the flaunting of money over their eyes, they bowed down to other things. I don't know what they are, but they bowed down to other things because the fruit that is in their lives contradicts what they sing and what they preach that a minister, a gospel minister that we have been singing their songs in church for years starts a reality show with a wife where married couples are outrightly, are outrightly encouraged to cheat on each other in the name of spicing their marriage. What a total shame. What a total shame to the gospel. A reality show in a famously known TV, a TV station. And that another minister who we already know that his songs are just as carnal as they are and his performances have been with other secular artists and that he has said things that are outwardly blasphemous, including saying that the lion and the lamb will bow down to the God and that we know that in his one of his songs, he has lipstick in his mouth, being a male. I don't want to mention names so that I can speak freely here. That him and the wife conjure another reality show because they are now celebrities. They are not ministers anymore. Put me, they put a reality show where single people are even encouraged to have fornication on live TV. And that they are really saying, that they, do, they don't care what the church will say. Then they will come and they will sing songs. The songs look okay. Even they look deep. The teachings of Balaam. But that in their lives, we can outrightly see that there is no living proof of being born again. These are men that are not submitted we have no proof that they have been submitted for long periods under the church and its leadership. They are just breakout ministers. We don't know where they come from. The Nicolaitans themselves, where do they come from? They are not submitted under the apostleship in Jerusalem, but that they are calling themselves apostles and yet they are not. That is what Christ says. 
And so these are men who are coming with their own authority out of nowhere and declaring themselves to be ministers. And even if they have a genuine calling like we have said with Balaam and with the Nicolaitans, with the proof of scripture, they are not submitted long enough so that they can be under training. Perhaps, how do we know, Balaam could have been one of the Gentile men that ministered to Israel if he had just left Balak alone. We see it in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. There are many Gentiles there that ministered to Israel and perhaps he could be one of them that ministered to them in a certain way and perhaps even would have encountered the true God in the process. We don't want to dismiss that, but that we know, we know that these men do not come under the submission of the church at all. Do, this, do we see the simplicity in their lives? Is there transparency in their, in their gospel and their lifestyle? That who knows of how they manage their home and if they are approachable enough for a model type kind of discipleship, not a celebrity kind of discipleship. What is the substance of what they are talking about? Are they tested in wilderness seasons and have truly been with the Lord? And if so, are they still full of themselves or are they entirely sold to exalt Christ? When some of these prophets prophets give just one word of knowledge like this, the amount of praise that is mounted on them. <laughs> is there soundness in their teaching? As First Timothy 3, 9 tells us, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The church does not look into these things. A CV, a certain kind of a recommendation or reputation or, or a commissioning with a major leader, that is all that it needs for another heretic to rise in the church today. That the church is in a place, in a right place, where someone can just sit down and plan and say that they are going to invade the church and they can gain credibility within a few days. Just pimp yourself enough. Just make yourself look in a kind of way and talk in a kind of manner. And that sadly enough, you can even consult with mediums and look spiritual and that the church will buy it. That there is no longer a consideration as it were with the Bereans of where does this gospel come from? Heresies that are being preached from the demonic world were being preached in the church of Pergamon. As it is today, we are preaching that sin is subjective. Isn't that what is being preached? That we are progressing into no sin doctrines. That fornication is not a sin. That now because we are the righteousness of Christ, we have the license to do anything that homosexuality in scripture only applies to slavery and temple worship what kind of deception that suffering is not god god's will this is a church that is ripe for the antichrist system to take over them because the antichrist will come with signs and with prosperity and with peace and such a church would fall for it even the elect yes we are told will not be able to stand him a benefits-based gospel that results in sowing of money 
into empire kind of ministries instead of the seed of the word of God that is sown into life and producing righteousness. New age practices. We're talking about third eye. Preachers preaching about the third eye straight from witchcraft and occultism. We're not talking about meditation, using very, very, very minor scriptures in scripture that on this word I meditate day and night. Therefore, we twist that to introduce meditation, new age doctrines. There is no kind of thing in, in scripture encouraging believers to have this sort of approach towards the Bible or its interpretation that you sit down in a room and you meditate about what you want to be a reality and then you speak your reality and then it comes to life. Those are occultic teachings. If you know some of the places that these teachings come from, do your research. Just do your research. That now we have tarot cards. Tarot cards in charge to read people's destinies and whatever. Prophetic cards twisting the prophets in the Old Testament until you want to say that the prophets had a kind of uh, astrological pattern with which they would use to determine the future. Uninterpreted tongues with accompanying responses. Snake handling. Speaking about spiritual energies and quantum physics. Speaking about grave soaking from men who are anointed. It's talking about spirit cooking. We're talking about spirit soaking. All these are witchcraft based. And they are slapped with scriptures to authenticate them. And that they are these men appear to congregants in dreams. Ask yourself why they do so. This is a demonic manipulation of the, of the church. Why is it that a minister would appear to several people in their dreams severally? Shows that there is a demonic kind of thing happening in that church that you don't know about. And therefore, through appearing of, 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 of them in dreams, they win the impression of the congregation. This is sorcery. Some of the common teachings you know, from the other world that have infiltrated the church, things like holy water, you know, and other sacred elements, you know, an excessive application of the use of the anointing oil and creative biblical miracles to now say that there can be things like holy water that a prophet gives you, lion of Judah, I don't know what are they. Ask yourself where those things come from. These extracurricular things of faith that are now instituted in churches, the law of attraction and quantum faith, this comes from a rich satanic background that are grounded on a superiority complex to, defi uh, to deify oneself, to make yourself like a god. That this teaching cannot come without them insisting on you being some sort of a god. And that they used, like I've said, very minor texts to, to twist it. Now that Jesus said that you are gods, that now you'd use that to say that somehow our words have this sort of superior supernatural ability to bring whatever we want to pass. Lustful desires are encouraged so that you bring them into reality. This name it and claim it kind of thing. This excessive use of saying that our tongue has power. Yes, it has. 
but not in this sense. It is used to selfishly get material gain through supernatural means, a self-help gospel. And so we are warned severally of such teachings from this man. And this is a warning against preaching heresy from Galatians chapter 1, 6 to 10. I won't read all, all of it, but here comes a New Testament curse. Speaking of curses, that if anyone preach, preaches a gospel that is contrary to the one that was preached to you, let him be accursed. Because if you preach anything other than Christ and him crucified, what are you proclaiming as a minister? Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Second Timothy 4 verse 1 to 5, telling him how people will have itchy ears in the end. Prophetic, prophetic perversion was there even in the camp of Israel. Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 8. Men who just preach peace, peace. Who light, it says that they have healed the wounds of my people lightly. And so they just bring temporal solutions to the spiritual condition of the people. But they will never exact exactly the kind of word that brings total transformation. A totality of the gospel that changes hearts. They will not preach that. We told in First Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 2. That now the Spirit expressly, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What are some of the people that we have given our ears to? What are some of these teachings that we are listening to? That if anyone preaches, even if it is an angel, we are told, let him be accursed if they preach anything apart from the gospel. We'll finish. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Change your mind. Go back to God. Ask yourself if there is a residue of some of these teachings in your heart today. Jesus says that if not, I will come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a reference towards the end of Revelation when Jesus comes as a rider on the white horse and that with the sword of his mouth he shall slay in flesh. I've talked about this previously. This same word of God that they are twisting and they are using it for their own purpose to ordain gay ministers, that same word that they are twisting, it will be used against them. This same word that we are joking about, bringing historical heresies to try and say that the Bible is not authoritative, to say that the word of God is nuisance, that same word of God of that day, you will see how dangerous it is. The word of God is powerful, saints. Just preach it. Just preach the word. Even if it is to youths that demand entertainment, Put the word of God in there. Because it is powerful to change hearts. You don't need a lot, ministers of the living God. This word is powerful in the spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will be given the hidden manna, food of angels, spiritual sustenance. It's a promise. 
that these people will be rewarded in the heavens and that they will be given a white stone. A white stone was what was given also in some of those Olympian games in Asia Minor during those days because we, we know that these cities had stadiums and that the victor's crown would either be a white cloth or that you're given a white stone which, which would guarantee an entrance into a banquet okay, to the winner, to the gladiator that won, whatever it was. That this name has a name that is written on it that no one knows except the one that receives it. An intimate reward, a covenantal reward, just like the name Pagamum means marriage. So let's pray as we finish. Lord, touch hearts, change minds, transform them, O oh God, to the true gospel, that whichever doctrine was spoken, O oh God, that comes from the pit of hell, that, Lord, would you have them, O oh God, to remove them through the watering of the word of God, the true word of God, that, Father, the revelation in their hearts would be pure, and so their worship would be pure, to the praise and honor of your glorious name. Bless them and keep them. Cause your face to shine upon them and give them your peace. Amen.